This is a special joint presentation by WNXP and WPLN, Nashville Public Radio. By 2006, Love Noise was in a comfortably regular rhythm. Every Sunday night, it was neo-soul, spoken word, and hip-hop open mics at the tiny venue, The Bar Car. As the five founders closed in on their third anniversary, Eric Holt tells me they decided to throw a celebration that would take up more space. We blocked off the entire street from the front corner right there where the bar car used to be located to the first center. The whole street was blocked off. For a true block party. And there had to be a poster. The one they commissioned from a local mural artist paid homage to a star-studded Brooklyn street party that was turned into a popular concert film the year before. Attention, Huxtables. There is a block party right around the corner. Bring Rudy, Theo. All oh, this is going to be people. I can see it now. This is the concert I've always wanted to see. All these people, before I ever met them, I was fans of theirs. Dream come true. Everybody in the house say hi! The poster for The Block Party is actually taken from Dave Chappelle's The Block Party. The cover art for Chappelle's movie features a crowded collage of the A-list artists involved. The Love Noise Block Party poster followed the same principle. Every face is crammed in there for a reason. So Holt sees my quizzical expression when I zero in on a martial arts practicing 90s action star who seems out of place. Listen, Toscani, I want to congratulate you. You just made number four on the most wanted list. Number four? I want to be number one. It's almost like he was stuck in there specifically to prompt questions. You say, what does Steven Seagal have to do with Love Noise? Well, in early days of Love Noise, the first year, we were in the basement of B.B. King's. And Steven Seagal is a big blues fan. And he was upstairs at a show, but heard what we were doing downstairs. And he came downstairs and sat in and just had a good time. I mean, literally, he drank all night with all the fans. Makes improbable sense. Seagal was one of the many sports and music celebs who'd come through and partied with Love Noise. But front and center on the poster is the famous figure they really wanted to draw attention to. The foundational Philly DJ they'd booked for their block party. Yours truly, the magnificent DJ Jazzy Jeff. And that was the, one of the biggest productions that we had done up until that point, 2006. This wasn't only a revered innovator in the art of sampling and scratching, but a very popular DJ who shared the first Grammy ever given for rap with the Fresh Prince. Jazzy Jeff wasn't going to play a party for pennies. Eric tells me the whole event came in at something like 50 times the cost of hosting those Sunday nights. We're talking the difference between hundreds and thousands. It was a big financial risk. It didn't pay off financially, but it paid off from a brand standpoint. And that investment was important to make to push us to a next level. This was a decisive juncture for Love Noise, and the outcome was anything but inevitable. Could they scale up their operation? Because Nashville itself was about to explode. L-O-V-E. Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Julie Height, senior music writer for Nashville Public Radio, and this is episode three of Making Noise. Tonight I wanna go out, but I'm 
tired of the same old thing. I wanna be stimulated. I wanna hear something exciting. Nashville Public Radio's Making Noise is the untold story of how a Sunday night party changed Nashville's live music scene. The show is sponsored in part by One Community, presented by the Tennessee Titans Foundation, Citizens Bank, and AT&T. Back before he knew better, Eric assumed the corporate behemoths of live music must be making bank on nearly all of their shows. I'm looking at entities like Live Nation or AG, it's like, man, they're winning 95% of the time. And that's not true. Realistically, he learned, success might mean turning a profit a lot less often than that. One of the, my mentors told me this a long, long time ago. She said, Eric, 51%. That's what this business runs on, 51%. Just get that 1%, you're good. You know, a lot of those years, Love Noise didn't make a lot of money. And with five guys, it was even less than that. This was an independent company pressuring Nashville's live ecosystem to make room for hip-hop and contemporary R&B and slicing the pie five ways. The stakes became higher when Love Noise started putting on shows at venues that held a lot more people. They relied on their audience to shell out for tickets a little pricier than the minimal Sunday night cover charge and to actually show up. There was no shortcut to building the trust that that required. It took following through event after event, establishing a pattern, and making sure that everyone got paid and taken care of. Word on the street is you gave him his walking papers in. Well, I want to be the man that my daddy raised me to be. It was just such a feel-good space. It was very warm. It was very inviting. That's Mimi McCarley, who you may remember from episode one. She sometimes went to shows with friends who were, like her, studying music business at Middle Tennessee State. At other times, she was on dates with the guy who's now her husband. He was more of a Southern rap fan and she got the chance to turn him on to some of her favorite sensitive soul singers. How can you not be grown and sexy with Raheem Devon? <laughs> Slive music with creamy velvety vocals. There may have been like dark curtains. Like it was an intimate setting and they had small tables like so. It's just warm. Cognac. <laughs> it's warm like cognac. These are the things that we need, you know, that make us feel good, keep us connected to music. Mimi says the way the Love Noise founders worked the room added a human touch, too. I remember them coming by, like they would go around the tables thanking people for coming, just being great hosts. In those days, she wasn't really thinking about the broader implications of what Love Noise was building in Nashville. She was just enjoying what they offered music lovers like her. But now she owns a company called Collab Music Network and puts on showcases for songwriters through a platform with a name that doubles as a thesis. Nashville is not just country music. I wasn't from Nashville, so I wasn't familiar with the temperature of the city. Now being a resident here and working in this space, I'm like, what they did back then is amazing because no one else was doing it. 
Another part of what Love Noise was doing back then was plugging Nashville into a new regional touring circuit for hip-hop and contemporary R&B. Maybe artists weren't willing to travel a long way for just one show, but if they paired a Love Noise booking with dates in Charlotte or Atlanta or Memphis, Holt says, that would make it worth their while. There were tons of artists that never would have come through Nashville without that platform, and so we kind of rotated around these artists. One of them was P.J. Morton. I know your eyes in the morning sun. I feel you touch me in the pouring rain. He wasn't widely known yet. Only true heads had heard the virtuosic ballads and funky, sophisticated jams that were informed and enriched by his New Orleans church roots. It was hard to find places in Nashville, I mean, you didn't think of it as a place that would house, like, you know, soul music or R&B music. PJ tells me that he didn't see any pathway to playing Nashville. That only changed when Mike Hicks, the keyboard player you heard from in the last episode, made the trip to Atlanta to catch one of PJ's shows and offered to introduce his then-manager to the Love Noise guys. I think Nashville was a place that soul artists and R&B artists, probably the ones that came before us even, had to skip because there wasn't a love noise that existed there. So love noise were the first ones to give us a shot. So every time we could, we just went right back to the well. It was synonymous. If we're going to stop through Nashville, you know, it's going to be with love noise. PJ's played hundreds of shows since the mid-2000s. He still has vivid memories of the crowd that came out that first time. He's at a vastly different place in his career these days. And the Grammy goes to How Deep Is Your Love? PJ Morton featuring Yeba. Good morning. PJ Morton. This is so exciting, man. I got to thank God, first of all, for, for the gifts, you know, to be able to do what I love for a living. In 2022, I saw P.J. Morton headline downtown Nashville's Ryman Auditorium. People typically refer to the Ryman as the mother church of country music, an honorific that reflects its initial purpose as a house of worship and its former use as the home of the Grand Ole Opry. It's customary, even ritual, for performers who step onto that historic stage now to express a sense of reverence, so much so that I expect to hear it. What is now called the mother church of country music. Mother Church, right here, the Ryman Auditorium. But PJ made another gesture of respect that night that I haven't stopped thinking about. In the middle of his show, he made a point to thank Love Noise and pivotal figures in the city soul scene, scanning the room to find them in the crowd. Way back in episode one, I noted that people at concerts do not usually give any thought to concert promoters. It's not on the radar. 
And this was the first time I could remember hearing an artist with a national profile and the Grammys to back it up take a moment to recognize a local promotion outfit from the stage. So I wanted to find out why PJ felt the need to do that. There would be no rhyming show without Love Noise. Like, there's a direct correlation in my mind. And all that just started to rush back because I'm like, how did I get here? And immediately, Love Noise popped in my head. That's how I got here. Not just because I've had a hit record lately or I've won a Grammy lately. This relationship was built long ago. And it says a lot that the relationship has lasted as PJ's blown up. By the early 2010s, Nashville itself was exploding. The city had long been a tourist draw, but it was on its way to becoming a globally recognized destination for visitors and for vast numbers of new residents. And that meant development was going to rev up. Gentrification, too. If Love Noise wanted to make a difference in a city on the rise, they need to figure out how to tap into that growth. And with waves of new people, profits, and prospects rushing in, they would also need to make sure that the music makers holding down the city's R&B and hip-hop scenes didn't get left behind or pushed out. We'll dig into that after the break. I'm Julie Height, senior music writer for Nashville Public Radio, and this is episode three of Making Noise. Hey, everybody. We are throwing a Sunday night party for this podcast, and you are invited. We're doing it March 3rd at Analog inside the Hutton Hotel. There's going to be music, some voices from the show, the founders, key figures of Love Noise, and of course, senior music writer Julie Height live and on the stage. It's going to be an awesome way to get together with people who love supporting local music and the work of Nashville Public Radio. You can find tickets at wpln.org slash making noise. Nashville Public Radio's Making Noise, the untold story of how a Sunday night party changed Nashville's live music scene, is sponsored in part by One Community, presented by the Tennessee Titans Foundation. Creating generational change, one person, one family, one community at a time. By giving all their energy to inspiring a positive and tangible impact through programs and partnerships. AT&T, driven by their conviction that connecting changes everything and actively working to help communities thrive in today's digital world. Learn more at att.com slash connected learning. And Citizens Bank a community-minded, purpose-driven financial institution celebrating 120 years of empowering individuals, families, nonprofits, and small businesses to fulfill their financial goals. Learn more at bankcbn.com. The Nashville of the early 2010s wasn't the same city. It had been transformed by cleanup efforts after a catastrophic flood, by a building boom and a shiny new convention center, by an explosion of interest in its music industry community and by the region's booming population. She was the queen of the charts and living her dream. But when you're on top, you have to fight to stay there. A soapy primetime TV show simply called Nashville appeared in 2012, dramatizing country music star-making machine and romanticizing the careers of working songwriters. 
The venues where the show was filmed became huge tourist draws. The following year, the New York Times famously crowned Nashville the It City. On a Venn diagram, the author of the piece, Kim Severson, wrote, the place where conservative Christians and hipsters overlap would be today's Nashville. The article made such an indelible impact that WPLN's talk show This Is Nashville had Severson on to do a post-mortem a decade later. I feel like people blame me for the, uh, you know, the rolling uh, bachelor party bike bars and stuff. I I didn't make those up just because I called it Knit City. She wasn't wrong. We longtime Nashville residents saw a slippery slope from its city status to becoming the capital of bachelor and bachelorette blowouts. That and the traffic were nuisances that we could roll our eyes at together. But there were other consequences of change. City blocks once familiar to me became unrecognizable. Neighborhoods changed entirely. Their black or brown or working class longtime residents displaced by gentrification. Commuting between Nashville and L.A. became more of a thing in the music industry, and songwriters and producers brought an L.A. vibe back with them. Nashville was getting a sweeping image makeover, adding a cosmopolitan gloss to its country reputation. And that, Eric tells me, put new pressure on venue operators. Competition at live music spaces got tense, so you couldn't just have country. You couldn't just have rock. You had to diversify. And so you saw some of those same venue owners saying, hey, Eric, come do this over here. Come do this over there, filling in their nights. And so it was a lot easier to book shows because these places needed to diversify their stages. We were in a good position to take advantage of that, along with a lot of other promoters and artists. Love Noise itself became a different organization around this time. Three of the founders, Chip Hockett, Antoine Nunn, and LaSalle Chapman, moved on to other careers. That left the event business in the hands of Bryce Page and Eric Holt. Because Sunday night attendance had slipped significantly, they decided to wrap the open mic parties and focus their energy on the bigger shows that people were coming out for. But that did leave a hole right as the city hit its disorienting growth spurt. Those who latched on to musical community through love noise during the 2000s lost their gathering place. Grandma's hands clapped in church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played the tambourine so well. Grandma's hands. A couple of years went by while Jason Eskridge, who'd been a fixture at those Sunday nights, kept thinking about them. And then it really hit him. I got to a place where I was like, something's missing. And I don't, when it was that place where local artists were playing soul music for local people. A small East Nashville bar called The Five Spot was hosting a Motown night that he dug. Every Monday, a DJ spun old records for people to dance to. It wasn't like the old Love Noise Sunday nights where local standouts got stage time, but it gave him an idea. He'd ask the owners if they were interested in hosting a night of live soul music. They were, turns out, 
So we decided to try and pick up where Love Noise left off. Obviously, it takes bands and musicians to make this happen, but more importantly, it takes you guys to make this happen. So thank you guys so much for coming out and supporting us all year long. It was a no-brainer that I needed to talk to Eric. And I went into it just thinking, okay, I'll, I'll just ask him questions to see how I can maybe avoid any pitfalls or anything like that. In 2014, Jason started Sunday Night Soul with Eric's blessing. He and I have joked about this. It's a passing of the baton. It is a, here, you take this now, and, but I'm still here. I may pray almost every day. I try to live life the right way. It just gives the artists this place where they can be themselves, try new things, jump off the cliff and know that the parachute's going to open, you know, like, and really be able to just be artists who are many times relegated to singing backup or, or being a sideman for someone else and having limited opportunities to allow their art to shine. Jason has kept Sunday Night Soul going for nearly nine years, and it hasn't always been easy. When people started to take it for granted and attendance dipped, he worked to build it back up. When the pandemic wiped out live music, he worked with the venue on a live stream. Keep trying to tell me, yeah. All you want to do is just use me. He's not only the master of ceremonies on Sunday nights, he's become a recognized ambassador for the city's devotees and virtuosos of soul, R&B, and funk. Because Nashville is known for what it's known for, it's important to have someone or something that is saying, hey, we also do this and we do it really well. Obviously, you've seen the growth of Nashville um, over the past, wherever you want to start the timeline. But that growth isn't solely because of CCM music and country music. I wholeheartedly believe it is because Nashville has presented itself as a melting pot and as a place where diversity isn't a bad word. Jason Eskridge can most certainly testify to progress that's been made. He's contributed to it mightily. But Nashville's black music scenes have been disenfranchised for long enough that it's a phenomenally complex issue. And there was someone else hanging out in those early Love Noise crowds, looking at things from another angle. Digging the performances for sure, but also zeroing in on the professional challenges and economic realities that closed off career paths. My name is Brian Sexton. I am a creative community developer here in Nashville. My first interaction with Love Noise. When Brian Sexton arrived in Nashville back in 1999 to enroll at Tennessee State, he couldn't find the diversity he was used to in Chicago's music industry. Growing up there, it was the norm to see entertainment companies run by black executives and black artists launching prosperous careers. I was looking for that energy here in Nashville. 
where is Black Nashville at? Where is the entertainment space? Where are the labels? And I quickly learned really, I mean, really fast that that just simply didn't exist. I mean, one trip up Music Row, stepping off campus and like going up Music Row and not feeling welcomed, not seeing people who look like me. The one place that Brian found young black music professionals in Nashville was Love Noise on Sunday nights. There is hope here in this market, right? And being in that environment helped him start to figure out what his role in the music scene was going to be. There was a time when he thought he might become a real estate mogul. Instead, he studied urban planning in grad school. And he came to the realization that anyone who wanted to make a career of hip-hop or R&B in Nashville needed more than just stage time. Because I was studying the community side, I was looking at this trend of how unaffordable our city was becoming. So you had the affordability piece that was bubbling, but then you had access and opportunity. There's only so many love noise shows an artist can do. They need a variety of opportunities to really blossom. That pressure is real for so many music makers. I once interviewed a wildly creative, sci-fi-inspired rapper in his living room studio. And when we finished and I gathered up my gear, he told me he was about to pack all of his belongings too. Developers were pricing him out. And I've heard a lot of stories of creative self-sufficiency from hip-hop collectives with little or no access to industry resources. Not even a change-making company like Love Noise could be the sole solution. So if the infrastructure to support someone's career is not in play, then how do they develop a career? So that is where I saw opportunity. Who's looking at the workforce development opportunity side? Who's looking at the housing side? Cost of living was escalating. That just made things harder for a lot of longtime residents. And for music makers who were already shut out of the system, it was hardly an equal trade-off. Brian knew people who were saddled with student loans from college music programs and couldn't get gigs. The landscape and the challenges were evolving as Love Noise and its original circle of artists grew up and the next generation of music makers entered its orbit. So I fell in love with solving that challenge of the quality of life side. Nashville cannot continue to be the city that it claims to be Music City and not have the infrastructure support. What good uh, is it if we cultivate the art and the gift and the talent, but we can't keep them here? Good question. Plenty of people have left. If they didn't want to take typical Nashville gigs and do their music on the side, if they wanted their career to be producing hip-hop bangers or writing confessional R&B songs, they went where the opportunity was. Atlanta, L.A., New York, Miami. But does it really have to be that way for a new wave of Nashvillians looking to love noise? We'll meet them and their ambitions in the fourth and final episode of Making Noise. Making Noise is a production of Nashville Public Radio. You can read more and share this podcast with your friends by going to WNXP.org. I'm Julie Height, senior music writer. This show is very much a collaborative effort. Lead producer on this episode is Marquise Munson. 
This subject matter is definitely not new to him. We've been working side by side to keep the spotlight on Nashville hip-hop, soul, and R&B for a while now. And his contributions to this project are an extension of that mission. Rounding out our core team are two other absolutely indispensable colleagues, producer Justin Barney and editor Tony Gonzalez. Additional editing and guidance from LaTanya Turner, Jason Moon Wilkins, and Magnolia McKay. Fact-checking by Emily Siner. Our show logo is by Mac Limeball, and Nicole Kemp is directing our live event at Analog in Nashville on March 3rd. Thanks also to Cindy Abrams, Rachel Iacovone, and Carly Butler. Our music in this episode includes clips by Jill Scott, DJ Jazzy Jeff, The Roots featuring Big Daddy Kane, Raheem Devon, PJ Morton, Jason Eskridge, and Ramey. There's also music from Blue Dot Sessions. 